This is episode 158. Our guest today is an expert ecologist, Simon Masto. And the reason he's our guest is because he wrote the book. The book is titled Wildlife in the Balance, Why Animals Are Humanity's Best Hope. And that book received and is still receiving glowing reviews. Important beyond compare. Utterly engrossing, at once chilling and heartening. Perhaps the most important book of our time. And even Mark Avery, who I'm sure most of the listeners of the podcast know, uh, half of you love him, other half hate him. Think about him what you want, but he reviews a lot of the books. And he also said that this is probably best book of the year. So I was really delighted to have an opportunity to read that book. And I must say that I don't agree with everything that's in that book, but the parts I do agree with are so brilliantly put that I was willing to make excuses for the parts I disagree with. So I was really looking forward for the, to this conversation with Simon and to ask him about certain aspects and his views about certain points he makes in the book. For me, the biggest thing about the book is that it connects biology and ecology with physics with like a hard scientific science of physics and when you make that connection for example it becomes uh, quite obvious why biodiversity crisis and climate crisis are in fact one and the same crisis something that i kind of knew that this is going on but i wasn't really sure so it's a mighty interesting book and i think that it is uh, one of the milestone books, one of the groundbreaking books uh, that describe concepts that we will hear more about in the years to come. So uh, I was really glad uh, to be able to chat with Simon about his book. And as always, if you want to buy the book, just go to the description of this show. There is a link. You can buy the book there. And if you will buy the book using that link, you will also support this show because I will get a small commission uh, from this sale. And obviously, your price is not changing. So um, listen to the podcast, go to the description of the show, and buy the book. And so that's it for this introduction. Now, enjoy the show. Simon, welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Hi, Tommy. How are you? I'm great. Listen, I got to admit, I was uh, really waiting for this conversation. I wait for all my conversations, but especially for this one, because uh, the your book, it's probably one of the most, it's not probably, it is one of the most interesting books I read in a while. Uh, and maybe it's most interesting book ever. And uh, you know, we're going to do what we do on this podcast. So we jump right into the deep end. And I want to lead with a very simple and very obvious question, yet the one that is not so easy to answer, which is, uh, what is the purpose of animals? What is the purpose of deer or a, or a turtle? And I, I want to acknowledge that this is an unfair question because you literally written an entire book 
dealing with and trying to answer that question. So um, I will accept your answer if you try to deflect it by telling us what were your motivations and reasons for writing this book. So the so principally, uh, the question, and you're right, the, the book leads with this one fundamental question, why do animals matter? And, it, okay, I'm going to do what you suggested. I'm going to talk about where this came from. Um, I, get, I don't get much chance to do this, but there's a, there was a moment, there was actually a moment, an epiphany moment, okay, that I had, and I, I never thought this could happen before, right? <laughs> it's very odd. Um, but I was in a place called Raja Ampat in eastern Indonesia, and I'd, I just had a very... Um, personally very powerful experience i actually was actually with a group of guests and we were uh, we'd watched a, a an animal called a brooders whale uh, it's a they're named after a norwegian whaler a big baleen whale um shortly before the guests had said to me do they ever leap out of the water i'd said oh no, they never do that and as we came into this island of wofo this baleen whale was leaping out of the water thanks nature um and it it, that was, it was amazing. And, and then we were diving a short time afterwards, um, quite near to where it happened. And we were in amongst all this huge, great like, murmuration of bait fish. Okay. And it was, a, it was a really incredible dive. It was close to sunset. And there were sharks coming through and everything. And I, I, I remember surfacing and just thinking, wow. And, and I was overcome with this emotion, which doesn't happen all that often. And it happens probably more to me underwater these days than it happens to me on the surface. And I and I, I, t I shrugged off my BCD, threw it in the zodiac, duck dived through, and 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 whatever. And, and and at that moment, kind of had this realization of something that kind of coalesced in my mind, a thought that I'd been having for probably the last twelve or fifteen years, which was uh, exploring this concept of, of of animals and what they're actually for. And it triggered the entire evolution of the book. So this is this is before COVID happened. In fact, I came back to Australia and I. I, I made myself a pledge to research the book, which I started to do um, towards Christmas. COVID didn't hit until about three months later, um, which, by the by, uh, gave me a six-month opportunity to be paid by the Australian government to sit in my, my room and write for six months, which is fantastic timing in a way. Um, terrible thing to happen but for everybody, but you know, a real opportunity for, the, for that. I think, I think up until or right through my career, Animals have kind of been this thing that we see as the surface, on the surface, kind of, I, I use the term, like the icing on the cake. And I think still right through conservation, we, we tend to imagine that's the case. And I've always challenged this idea, like, why, why do we do conservation? Like, why? If you actually say to people, why say whales? They'll go, um, and they'll, they don't, can't answer the question. And so I thought this would be a fascinating thing to look into. And so long story short, over the course of six months, I, I had to more or less completely rebuild my entire fundamental knowledge of how the planet works. I started at, down a thread, I can't exactly remember how, and to the realization that when you begin to look at the sort of scale, intensity, and magnitude of what animals actually do, and you stick that within a framework of um, energy and how it flows from the sun through through the earth, you very quickly realize that the the fundamental elements that enable human beings, being another animal, to survive don't exist because plants create the ecosystem. They exist because on the narrow surface of that plant-based 
energy structure, which can collapse very quickly, there is this thin and rather fragile layer that is meshed together intricately by literally, not even trillions, like numbers far bigger than anything we can possibly imagine of overlapping pathways and an intricacy that kind of holds the fabric in place. And within that fabric, there are layers of uh, what we would call food security and 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 fresh water and and stable climate and, and everything else. And it's that diversity and abundance of wildlife working together with humans actually as part of that structure that creates the stability that enabled us to evolve in the first place and survive today. And so why animals matter is a really interesting question because you've got to get to this end of this narrative and you're like, oh, they matter because in fact... They're part and parcel ecosystem. And actually, if there's anything close to an idea of a meaning of life, it is that the survival mechanisms that we are entrained within our DNA and our psyche and our culture and everything else are literally the same reason we exist. It's fully cyclical. And it's it's a remarkable thing. And it's very esoteric. And it's it's actually a very rewarding way to look at nature that changes my whole perspective on our future as well, and and for much more positively, I should say. Yeah, your 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 mention about this moment of clarity in the book is like almost like I was thinking about like a meditative experience, you know. And and I think yeah, we all could do more with uh, being in nature and and uh, getting these clarity moments. Listen, um, you know, for this podcast, I I probably read more books and scientific papers than I would ever imagine on wildlife and and um, uh, ecosystems and and uh, conservation, etc. And this is a, a little bit of a, you know, pitfall, I think, because um, on one hand, I am I was uh, on many occasions critical about science and scientific process, and you know, like the famous quote, "Science uh, progresses one funeral at a time." About how scientists are very um, uh, protective, sometimes uh, unreasonably protective about their ideas, but at the same time, I'm always looking to. Um, look to back certain concepts and ideas with some research, some data, and so on. And I never actually found anything, and that's what it means. I never found. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Like I didn't found anything that would even come close to the ideas you're you're uh, presenting in a book. And so, on one hand, is like, oh, is this guy just making these things up? Then, on the other hand. That is the hallmark of a great book and a great author that presents certain things in a way that were, were not presented in that way ever before. That's, that's the whole purpose of it, right? And you've done a lot of research, like you said in the book, and now you said it for, for that book. So how these concepts are, are they completely novel concepts in, in your view? Or do you found any similar sort of the research that will be aligned with that? And maybe also, did you get any pushback once you published the book on, on you know, like, oh, what this guy is talking about? Ironically, I've not had any pushback at all. Wow. Which is really fascinating. Um, it, in fact, it, you know, quite the opposite. It's... it's um, in one particular instance, I'm now working with a conservation group whose founder has worked for 20 years recovering uh, um, rare wildlife and, and reversing extinction, has adopted the book as the mantra explaining how his work worked for the last 20 years, and he hasn't been able to explain it, which is wonderful for me because actually his work is actually more of an affirmation of what I've written about, which means that there is evidence. Um, and I would say in relation to your other part of your question, um, 
Okay, no, I, I don't. There is a novel part of the book, but the majority of the book is not novel. And the majority of the book is just taking a, a an existing concept and reframing it. And the evidence is actually very strong, and it's all there if you if you bolt it together and and, and extract from the from the right places, and you interpret in a certain in the right way. Uh, and I talk in the book about going back sort of hundred years, and there's this kind of um, diversification point where the where science of ecology kind of went in one direction and physics went in the other, and the two actually are beginning to come together again. And so, actually, what's been very rewarding is even as I was researching the book, and and more probably since the books come out, and this is how rapidly this is changing. There are papers after papers coming out that are now establishing what I've written about, um, which is really exciting. And almost every day, I find another research paper that comes out, and I go, "Ah, that's <laughs> that's another bit of evidence." You know, I could add more and more all the time. But the thing I think that fascinates me most about the story, okay, is that. It's a simple story that makes sense. For me, it makes more sense than anything I've ever been taught about before. And things that make sense usually have a truth behind them. And I find that when I introduce the topic to general members of the public who don't have a, a serious ecological science background, they get it immediately. And they're somewhat surprised when you tell them that this is something that most scientists don't think like. They go, really? People don't think animals do this, and you go, no, in largely they don't at all. And this was one of the reasons why Ian Redmond, the lovely gentleman, uh, decided to get behind the book and, and gave me the glowing uh, cover quote um, because he has never, I mean, he experiences all the time the same thing. So there's lots of people out there who've thought about it but never been able to frame it. The part of the book that I think is novel which I'm excited about, and I can think it, personally it places it within the realms of a, a more of a thesis, is the part where I talk about why and how animals uh, create ecosystems. And so I have a background that's very diverse, everything from conservation ecology to uh, industrial consultancy, and, and I've worked as an expert witness, and, I, and, I, and I've worked as a marketing communications expert, and I've done so many different things. And I come at this from different angles. But, but when I was a consultant ecologist in the UK, I worked with uh, uh, Professor David Hill. That was one of my first jobs. He was a wonderful mentor and, and, and wrote a very nice uh, comment in the book. And we used to do, we sort of cut our teeth in the, environment, in the ecological impact assessment realm. And when you do ecological impact assessment, you can't prove what is going to happen. You can only look at scale and degree. So you learn this sort of intensity, magnitude, scale metric you say well is something significant where well, you look at is it huge <laughs> how intensely does something affect a place that process is usually applied to the impact we have on on nature but if you flip it on its head and you say well okay if animals build ecosystems which i pretty much know that they do then if you flip it on its head then you can look at the impact the animal has but the animal's impact is not negative it's actually St stabilizing, or at least it is if it's combined with other animals. So that was the first thing I did. And that's not particularly novel, but it's just flipping the script a bit. The part that I think was fascinated me that I kind of worked out as I went along is there are basically three processes that animals do. And they do this at all scales, from planetary, in the case of, say, sperm whales, to right down to, you know, worms in your garden and, and microscopic animals. They transfer energy. Okay, so animals move. The difference between animals and plants 
is that animals' brains are in their head. There's an air gap between their feet and the ground when they jump in the air, and they have to move to find food. So they're, they're initially, straight away, animals need to move from A to B, and in doing so, they transfer energy from one place to the next. But there's no point in going to the next place if you can't find the food you're looking for. And so unless you're part of creating a stabilization process where you go, you're going to go extinct. Okay, so the next thing that happens is animals concentrate nutrients, and that happens in food chains from the top down. And the concentration process is well exampled through something like a blue whale, which introduces iron into the sea surface at millions, millions of times higher concentrations in surrounding seawater, and actually creates the basis for the entire food chain and supercharges it. But that even isn't enough, because in biodiversity terms, those processes and all the nutrients that are reintroduced get taken up instantly. Okay, there's very little surplus energy in an intact ecosystem. So the final part of the equation, and this is the really important part, is amplification. And so blue whale is a great example of that as well. So blue whale doesn't just go in, gorge itself on the food, and it's gone. It actually goes in, gorges itself, reintroduces and recycles the iron back in, which then creates another flourish of phytoplankton. So what would have disappeared in the space of maybe a week, all of a sudden, as long as the blue whales are there, is carrying on, and all the other animals pile in on top. And then as you go down the food chain, forced from top down all the way through, they're all doing the same thing. They're, they're transferring, concentrating, and amplifying. And that lengthens seasons. And it's that predictability it's that ability for animals to kind of, if you like, create biscuit-sized areas of constructed ingredients that allows human beings to live. Our farming, our fisheries, everything we do is predicated on these historic patches that animals have created through those same processes. And that part of the story, I think, is the is the thesis. And, and that, if anything, that's the part of the book that that I don't think anyone's ever put together and, and I'm quite proud of that and, I, and I, I and it's fun as well because I now see see these things everywhere I go yeah and you're you're you certainly uh, have things to be proud of and you mentioned the blue ways I I remember uh this uh this this chapter this 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 section of the book when you were talking about blue whales and that was that was nothing short of fascinating uh one of the things memorable things uh, and you know, like that, what what resonated with me is like to say this connection of the physical processes with ecological processes. It's like, yeah, that 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 actually makes sense. Um, you have a like you presented a a uh, or thesis, or you said in in the book that all animals matter. That we need all the animals, and you you also are. Um, talking about that the humans are really we are just just an animals and we're part of the that that whole system and that is a view that uh surely many would challenge i, I think i would challenge it myself that how how come all animals matter surely if we you know get rid of one species or for like get rid of humans for that example um nothing big would happen everything would would rebalance itself and again some would make a strong argument that if we get rid of uh, one particular animal us everything would be so much better <laughs> i would like you to elaborate on on this uh, aspect of it. oh my goodness i mean putting on that thread take i, I it's funny I, I mean it takes the book in a different direction i don't cover a lot of this in the book i deliberately left short because when once you've understood and you've really come to terms you're you're exactly right with 
that whole concept that we're an animal and we're part of this system. The idea that we could separate ourselves from it is, is it's unimaginable. And yet, you're right, we do. And one of the things that I say in the book, which is there's, there's a few points in the book I make which, uh, which, which are there to be challenged um, and, and discussed. It's a conversation starter, such as the fact that in the absence of animals, plants would destroy the whole world. <laughs> and they have done in the past. Okay, something that people were, were, were might listening to this might go, oh, goodness, but I encourage people to read more about that because it's it's true. Uh, Alan Titchmarsh today came out and said something which <laughs> said that rewilding doesn't work and doesn't diversify plants. Absolute rubbish. It's completely opposite, Alan. Go and read the book. So if we remove, if we remove human beings from the equation or we separate ourselves from nature, which actually we're prone to doing as conservationists very often, what we do is we we reduce the, uh, well, there's a reality that we're there anyway. Um, this gets into a, a fairly big philosophical, um, could get into a very big philosophical debate about our future. Um, and there are various ways I could present on that. But ostensibly, I think we have a very westernized view generally, um, and that's because of where we come from. The times I spend in some of the less developed countries where um, I'm alongside some of the poorest people on earth who, who almost always seem to be custodians of some of the most powerful and important landscapes left on the planet are hand to mouth. They, they're not making, they're, they're never going to be influenced by the sorts of decision making that we're talking about all the time on Twitter and everything else, right? And the more I think about it, the more I think that the majority of the human race is like that. That even um, when I'm walking around the streets here in Melbourne, um, I see people and, and observe their behaviour, and and they you know, they may not be very poor, but they're struggling with doubling or tripling of energy prices and putting their kids through school and increased costs of rent and unemployment and various other things. And 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 the vast majority of people. Are simply getting on and i guess there's a premise in the book which can come across as a little bit a bit negative but i think there's a positive spin on it as well is that we we aren't really as a population in control of what the outcome might be we can we can society can steer ourselves in a direction that we that takes us to the next transition of humanity in a most comfortable way possible that's why i'm a massive advocate for social equality and diversity, all those things are inherent in ecosystems and they're inherent in the way we live and the way we survive. But I don't think we could, we should get too weighed down in a fear of what might be um, because nature, when you understand it in the way that I've described in the book, is so ridiculously powerful that I think our egos are regularly getting in the way making us imagine all sorts of things that may or may not happen. And we just simply don't know what the future holds. Um, I know that sounds a bit strange and I can be criticized. I mean, the people listening to this will be thinking, you say climate change doesn't matter. That's not the point. But as I say to my children, a simpler life doesn't necessarily mean we're worse off. And three generations ago, my grandparents were fighting a world war and yet they reminisced of the good old days <laughs> yep yep and they grew uh, vegetables in their allotment and kept chickens you know so i, I don't th i think we have to be a little bit cautious about being too 
overly despairing. Yeah, yeah. And look, you're 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 you put another um, uh, thing in your book that I was really interested in because, which, which like on the surface, my you know what I know to that point is like, no, no, what is it? This is this is rubbish. But then when you arguing like, you know, you might be onto something. You made the point that wildlife management doesn't make sense. It's it's uh, and and I thought you know like again like. But again, this is like a hallmark of a really interesting and, and good communication that you that you leading with a punch, and now you have that tension, and then you're laying out your argument, and that argument makes sense. So I would like to really like briefly, uh, and, and obviously people who wants to uh, learn about it in the, in the great detail can read the book, and just a reminder: the links to the book are in the description of the show and in the newsletter and, and so on. But just uh, on the you know like a high level view, why do you think that wildlife management doesn't make sense? So principally, human beings are really good at fiddling with shit all the time. Excuse my French. We just fiddle with stuff, and that's actually part of our DNA. Okay. Um. Anybody listening to this podcast who owns a garden or a house, I challenge anyone to say they've ever finished it. Okay. <laughs> we constantly breaking stuff up and that's really very a very animal like thing to do right and in an ecosystem things find their balance through natural processes so um let's let's look at it this way i think i use this analogy in the book that if i give you a million marbles and i tell you to throw them out in your house they're going to settle where they settle okay and if i was to then say to you, right, here's a million marbles. I wanted you to go and put them all where the marbles went before. You'd go, <laughs> that's ridiculous. The amount of energy it takes to do that, you're forcing an outcome. And it's the same in a way with wildlife management. Now we, so rather than managing wildlife, what we have to understand is that wildlife in ecosystems need to create a balance between many different species operating together and 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 again those that intricate mesh that they create the touch points in it are, go, are exponentially complex to the point that if we actually remove or tamper with any part of that pattern she doesn't make a lot of difference what we're effectively doing at the moment is going over the top and we as humans are at, at, at degrading it by removing those structures Okay, so the, really the only way we can make a difference at the moment is by managing our own behavior. Um, and this is a, f a fundamental tenet of, of rewilding, as we know, that the big greatest thing we can do is to remove the threat and stand back a little while and let thing, nature take its course and just observe, which is a very natural thing to do, watch nature and kind of learn and, and just hold back. Um, Isabella Tree talks about this in her book, about several examples where they, they were desperate to go in and fix a weed problem and they thought no we'll just leave it and it all kind of all came right in the end okay so as as scientists are always reminding people that we've presided over 50 years of wildlife loss we've never seen wildlife recovery we're only just starting to the only maybe only in the last few years have scientists started to actually research what recovery looks like and behaves like so we're kind of obsessed with this idea that everything's being lost and we've got to get in there and do something about it all the time. 
And one of the ways we often do that is by, by we go, okay, well, it looks like things are out of balance. Something's eating too much of another thing, it seems. So we go and kill the thing at the top. But if you understand how ecosystem structure works, and I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it by saying again that it's top down, but not the way people think, because people always go, oh, does that mean the wolves are doing everything? And no, 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 it's not like that. It's top down all the way through the ecosystem. So if you take any layer out, any biomass out, you're going to topple that structure. It's pyramidal. You shave the top of a pyramid, it rains, it's going to start disintegrating. It's the same principle. And so wildlife management is not about seeing something and taking more away. It's really about seeing what's missing and helping it reform. So, so when I say wildlife management doesn't work, I don't think it... Um, I entirely mean it. It doesn't work at all, but we have to manage our own behavior and then allow wildlife to manage itself. There's a few other things that I, that I would like to follow up on this because that was a really, really good part of it. So does it mean, or do you mean that wildlife management uh, in the form that, that you just laid out uh, that doesn't work or is not entirely worked? So wildlife management, no, but exploitation, yes. So is there like what what where is the aspect of humans being part of the ecosystem and you know also hunt and 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 do all those those things? I I, I literally for the preparation for this podcast had a, had a sentence on my on my notebook: management no, comma exploitation yes question mark. Well, and, and look, and, and I suppose I mentioned earlier I was slightly nervous uh, about doing this anyway because I, I haven't done this for a while and I'm kind of presenting myself to the to the UK which is where I come from it feels like you know going to a school reunion or something but um and I knew that the, the question of hunting would come up and 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 there's there, again there's all these polarized ideas that people raise I, I've had people constantly go well you, you want wildlife to be conserved so you must be a vegan and I go no my book is about how animals regulate ecosystems it's got literally nothing to do with veganism now now it turns out that i actually have quite a few significant dietary problems and uh, I, I am very limited in what i can eat I, I i there is a lot of choices i make every day and and yet i still largely choose to be vegetarian um that's my choice right but in ecosystems you don't have that option and also again the types of people who i regularly engage with in places like uh eastern indonesia who are statistically among the poorest people on planet earth simply do not have any choice but to eat the food and be part of that food chain and as as carnivores um and it's their way of life in fact if they didn't do that then they would not be able to protect the systems and maintain them in the way that they do right now it's because it's part of a culture that's thousands of years old. It's the same with the Aboriginal people in Australia. Hunting was part of a 65,000-year-old culture. And I don't think, I think a lot of the time we forget that in Europe, that the Aboriginal population of Australia, 65,000 years, they occupied the land and lived in reasonable harmony with it at the start. Possibly not so much, but certainly for at least the last forty-five to fifty thousand. The longest civilization in Europe that I can find is about fourteen hundred years old. You know, and and so 
who are we to say that some of the longest surviving, wisest indigenous populations in the world were wrong to do what they did? Having said that, I have a chapter of my book, which is titled Stop Killing Wildlife. And I sort of deliberately made it that, you know, that finite. I slightly regret it in the sense that it doesn't necessarily mean let's just not kill any animals or let any other animals kill the animals ever. But what it does say is we have to do everything we can to make sure that wildlife doesn't get killed and you know, go in reverse and things become extinct or less abundant. You've got to have enough to let these processes kind of regulate themselves. I'm very honest with you, Tommy. I'm not a big fan of hunting. Okay, I've never done it. I find um, the idea of hunting when it is not done for specifically survival purposes, uh, at contrary with everything that I understand about he how ecosystems work. Um, I we have a here in Melbourne a lot of spear fishermen. And it's heralded as the most sustainable form of fishing, but we've got 7 million white people living on the edge of a 2,000 square kilometer bay here. Uh, and they have literally no cultural connection whatsoever to the bay. And we have no resident reef fish left on any of the reefs largely because of it. So it is always nuances, but I think the overarching thing again is going back to this idea of management is that we as humans need to start to understand and respect every single animal. So the Aboriginal people, for example, if they, when they hunt an animal, um, will revere that animal, respect that animal, um, you like read the animal its rights. This, it, it's an incredible thing to see them doing. And each person in the, in the mob has a, a totem, which is, a, which is an animal, which they kind of look after. So there's this inbuilt cultural connection and protection of the diversity and abundance of creatures. And I think in natural systems, when I go and, and I, I run a tour, or, I go, or even when I go snorkeling in the bay here, the natural way for animals to be is actually not very scared. And this is another really interesting thing about getting under the water. When you look, when you get in, in and you snorkel on a marine park like we have down the road here, and you're face to face with a snapper, and it's literally there along with 20 of the others all circling around your head and you're laughing your head off and you think to yourself, if I had a spear gun, I could literally just shoot one of these in the head and it wouldn't have a clue. And that is the point. It used to be like that. The Aboriginal people could, if they wanted to, gone in and just slaughtered all of them, but they didn't because, well, they probably did. They might've done it at the very start. And of course, then they, their population had collapsed. And so over 65,000 years, they, they didn't learn, they just survived, and their culture that developed around that developed with that into song and dance and totems and all the other intricate cultures they have that I couldn't even imagine and became a survival strategy. And as the Westerners, we've lost that. And, and I, I don't know the answer to this question. I don't, know, I don't have a, an answer as to what we need to do other than be a lot wiser and more respectful. No, and look, like they say, it's don't never mind the answer. Ask the right questions first, and you worry about the answers later. Entire like a theme of the book is the balance, and and you know the title is wildlife in the balance. What's your like? Given like everything that you said about not removing the the animals from the layers of the ecosystem and so on, how about 
when the animals, certain species of animals, are imbalanced because of human actions, for example, and they are destructive to the environment. And I found it very interesting because you, you, you. Uh, I, I think in the book you were mentioning mother kangaroos in Australia. If memory serves me well, where they're you know quote unquote overabundant, and your argument and you know destroying the habitat and whatever. And your argument is like, well, you might think I'm crazy, but I'm saying we shouldn't. We stop. Should stop shooting them because that's the way of nature to rebalance itself. But would it be correct to say like, okay, that nature will rebalance itself, but it might not rebalance itself in the way we imagine. So, you know, we may lost a habitat because of the process of rebalancing itself, um, which is kind of like a difference between rewilding and conservation, that in the rewilding you don't have, you know, the expected set target goal that you have at the end. It's just like, okay, let's see how it plays out. But then how it plays out might be effectively net loss in terms of biodiversity or habitat. There is a, a component of this which I think is often missed that um, when you have broken ecosystems, animals actually have to rebuild and it goes through actually to a period of uh, chaos a little bit and causes problems. And I, I, like, I may liken it in the book, I think. I can never remember if it's in the book or in my blog, but like a building site. Uh, you bring animals onto a building site to build a house, right? and construct it and by the end phase between the materials being delivered and the house being built is pretty messy but we accept that but yeah we don't accept the messiness of animals coming in and rebuilding things because they're we see them as an inconvenience it'd be like if we shut every housing development down because we don't like the sound of concrete mixes or guys with radios blaring on the the neighborhood roof like it was this morning when i stepped outside we take that for granted but we don't give animals the same the same chances I think that's part part of the answer. I mean, I, I, I think we I kind of would like to hear your view a little bit more on that as well. Well, I think there is very, very short distance from here to uh, introduce species, non-native invasive species. And I spent some time thinking about it uh, quite a long ago. And I see the merits of quite strong interventions. So, for example... You have because there is also also other elements at play other than uh, animals. There are, for example, diseases, and you and you speak about the diseases in your book as well. Just just want to acknowledge that for the listeners, that for example, you have a populations of bighorn sheep, right? And there's like one population that has certain disease and the other one that doesn't. And now you're managing them by shooting them and not allowing to cross, so they're not gonna spread the disease. And, and it's a scenario like that. And sure enough. You, you you get an approach hands-off and bam, you know, everything rebalances itself. One population of sheep is gone. So the nature will rebalance itself, but it will be a net loss. And, my, and, and we don't want to accept that. Whether it's right or wrong, maybe we should say, you know, like, let the cheetahs and, and, and pandas go extinct. They're not terribly robust species, right? It's like just our thing. Which, is, which leads me to another aspect of, of your book, which I go in, in, in a second. I think that fundamentally, this is down to that we as humans are operating on the different timescales. So if we're protecting a species or a habitat, we want to see the results in, you know, 50, 60, 100 years tops. How the nature works, you know, it will rebalance itself. Give it 20 million years. 
Except it's much faster than that. And, and so, so I, I'm going to mention something that blew my mind completely. The organization that I'm currently working with is called the Odonata Foundation. I would encourage people to go and look them up. Odonata, as in Dragonfly, Odonata Foundation. Um, it's a privately organized, a privately funded foundation, and Nigel Sharp, the the founder, um, runs a, a sanctuary near Melbourne called the Rothwell Sanctuary, and it. it, it it's one of the most successful predator-proof sanctuaries in Australia, and it's been circumstantial in the recovery of, of several threatened species. But it's most famous for an animal called the Eastern Barred Bandicoot, which is like a little kind of um, cross between a rat and a rabbit, little pointy ears, pointy nose, and little bars on the side. It's a cute little thing, and it runs around in grassland. And at its lowest ebb in 2004, I think it was, there were Five individuals found unexpectedly, because it was thought to be extinct on mainland Australia, where it was once common, in burnt-out cars in a quarry in Western Victoria. And a guy called John Walmsley found, grabbed them, put them in this sanctuary. He was a, very, he was a bit of a divisive character. He used to wear a, 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 a cat fur hat. Uh, and that, that um, sanctuary went, uh, was, it was going bankrupt, and it was taken over by um, the guys at Odonata. And wind forward 20 years, and and they've now got the biggest population of mainland eastern bark bandicoots, a couple of thousand of them, I think, in the sanctuary. Now, I visited first in 2009, and I've been back a couple of times since, but I went there a few weeks ago, and I was walking around, and I rang Nigel, and I said, I can literally see the difference between the first time I came. It's amazing. And he said, well, you you, you don't know anything yet. He goes... We we used to, our fences used to get washed down, but since we've got the animals, they don't get washed away anymore in floods. And secondly, he goes, we don't have to do any weed pest management anymore because the animals are dealt with it all by diversifying the structure. And thirdly, he said, you want to find out about our Tiverton project because they've just introduced eastern barred bandicoots. Bearing in mind, this is an animal that politicians said just let me go extinct. Okay, it's too hard basket. This is my point. We should never, ever assume that any animal is important. So they introduced it to Tiverton, a sheep farm, fenced it. In three years, they've rebuilt soil structure, reduced flooding risk, so reduced the cost of fencing and everything like that. And they've also increased the tensile strength of the wool in the sheep, which means the farmer can get more money from the market. So the project now is to expand across Australia large-scale rewilding programs that are designed to rebuild farm economies. Now, we're in a very unique situation in Australia that we don't have subsidies for farming. We never have. Farmers here have to work tooth and nail to survive. Okay, so it's, if you like, it's a bit more of a kind of pure system, and it's a much tougher place to farm. And in many ways, much much greater environmental impacts because we're a mega diversity country. But the but I think the flip side, but the positive side of that is, um, and I was just writing about this this morning for Odnata, There's going to be a far greater opportunity. There's a lot more landowners amenable to going. Well, can we try something different? And I see the situation in the UK as fascinating, having left there, and particularly living in a country now where I am seeing the end of a 65,000 year old land management culture. Whereas in the UK, I think back to myself and I go, wow, my heritage was so fractured and broken for so long 
And I see all these arguments between people in the UK about, we've got to do it this way, we've got to do it that way, when the actual solution for all these things is diversity. In fact, if I had a magic wand, I would wave it and go, let everybody do what they can to protect wildlife and see what works and what doesn't work. Because there's too many people out there trying to control the entire narrative and tell everyone to do one thing only. You already preempted my question because I always ask a question at the end of the podcast. If you had a magic wand, what would you do? And some <laughs> and some people hate that question. And you just, here you go, you just came out on your own and say, this is what I would do, which is, I'll which is great. Again. I'll again, I've got another answer. <laughs> Okay, I'll ask it again at the end of the uh, at the end of the show. This is where where this is where it belongs. But no, I totally agree that uh, we in fact know so little about the how the all the connections between different pieces, let's call them, of the environment work with each other. Then the outcomes can be completely un, un, unpredictable, which you're which you just gave uh, excellent example, Simon. One other question, a little oh, bit. I just add, sorry, so so even though it's predictable, it's not unpredictable. We we have a tendency to um, focus on how things work rather than why they work. So I, I this this thing I like to like to say that so what the why question, why do things work is natural philosophy, whereas how things work is natural science. And there's a space for both of those. But we tend to put the how before the why, which is a problem because if we just try to describe how ecosystems work, we will never be able to prove it. But we know why they work. They work because animals are in the balance, in the right structure. And so we need to focus on getting the why right and going, if everyone says, ah, okay, we agree they work because of that. So now we can work towards that as an objective. And then we can work at how we get there, not how ecosystems work. So it's actually the, the simplicity of the story is in the structure, if we get that right, looks after itself. And that is missing from the narrative because people get confused all the time by this idea that we can describe an entire functioning ecosystem which we never can. And that's why they could they couldn't predict that, you know, impact of these uh, animals um they had on the on the sheep farm and so on. That's what I meant unpredictable because nobody would thought about it. Okay. So I want to uh just to stay in the same vein, uh just to follow up on one more point that you made in the book, which I uh, for a change I found very compelling and agreeing with which is you said that conservation is making species into a victims and it's like a it's a it's a dominionistic approach conservation like now some conservation is listening to that and they go like ah, i can almost see that but you made the excellent point that this is the, the making that conservation is making animals into victims like if, if you would like to elaborate just just a little bit that that's right, and so yeah, this so it's it's I guess it's as you said it's it's embedded in this whole idea of dominion over animals, and again we we have this tendency to to assume a superiority. It goes back to this question of wildlife management. You know, we, the animal needs to behave this way in order for for it to survive, or or we would we need to kill this thing to make that thing work, and so on. And we we sort of over in doing that, we are. Ignoring the the fundamental humility of of the whole situation, which is that we actually are equal. So, in a zero sum way, we are no less or more important than any other animal on Earth, and um, because the structure and maintenance of Earth's ecosystems depend on 
the whole diversity working together. I talk in the book about um, uh, examples from a, a paper on the role of uh, reef fish, for example. So it's sort of 6,000 odd reef fish in the world. Uh, science has shown that there's only maybe two or three species that do one particular job. Okay. So you, uh, in order for an ecosystem to function, you have to have all these specialists working together. And I liken it to a marketplace. You know, you don't you have market sellers and vendors, and you have the, you know, the guy with the, the bell calling, and you get the people delivering with the trucks, and the guys that put the gents up at the start of the day and take them down at the end of the day, and the marketing people. You don't suddenly go, we don't need any of those. We just need one person doing everything and expect the system to remain intact. There's an equality. Everybody understands that they have their role. The existence is exactly the same. Everyone is equal. And, and, and I think we've, lot, we've really lost the plot with that, especially going back to your question earlier, when an animal becomes an inconvenience. This idea of overabundance, Tommy, is a, it's a word that's that's kind of come into lexicon in the last year or two. And it's really frustrating because I look at it and I go, there's no such thing as overabundance. There is only the abundance that is needed to re-extract um, energy from an ecosystem and put it back where it's useful. And uh, if I can just you know, indulge momentarily about climate, the question about carbon, uh, ignoring fossil fuels for a moment, just thinking about the kind of biodiversity side of carbon, um, there's this kind of, you know, might as well, like, oh, all carbon is bad. But the amount of carbon on Earth has always been the same ever since Earth was first formed. It, it's The only difference is whether that carbon is, is where it is and whether it's useful for human beings to exist or whether it's dispersed out in an entropic way through entropy into you know, smoke and and gases and whatever. At which point it becomes completely useless to us. So these are these are fundamental things. I think that we have to kind of start to understand that in order to regain control of those processes, we have to have thousands of animals working together, and many of those animals need to need to have free reign to move distances and coordinate with each other. Um, and I, I talk in the book about the uh, you know the example of how complex this is. And I thank my son, Charlie, for this one thing. Because I was researching the book and he turns around and he goes, Dad, did you know that a deck of cards has more permutations than all the atoms on Earth? And I thought, that's rubbish. Because he's also told me that um, the people, the gamers use more energy than a, than a marathon runner at one point. So I don't always believe everything he says. But he's right. They do. If if human beings shuffled a deck of cards since the beginning of time until now, we'd only just be repeating the um, the sequences. And so, when you talk about biodiversity, and we tend to think of biodiversity as number of species, but it's not. It's actually the intricate connections between species. If you just take a tiny proportion of a population of animals away, the number of touch points and connectivity exponentially drops. A bit like the way COVID. You know, disease happens, um, and that we overlook that fact that that even abundant animals are, are far more important. And so, when something becomes abundant, we just immediately go as terrible. When in fact, its abundance is incredibly important for re-engineering the ecosystems that we've broken. You know, like one other thing that I, I said about your book that uh, 
while reading your book, there was like probably first time where the penny dropped about how climate crisis and biodiversity crisis are the same thing. And, you know, like this is this thing that is being repeated. Oh, this is the same, same crisis. We cannot talk about one without the other. And, you know, this is like one of those things that you kind of understand and you can explain that to someone, but you not really understand. And only after reading your book, there was like this penny drop, like, aha, that's how this is actually the same thing. That's what you just, just mentioned about the carbon distribution. That's right. So fossil fuel we burn today was simply carbon that was uh, laid down, con transferred, concentrated and amplified by animals millions of years ago. Um, those animals that did that no longer exist, which is why it's so dangerous to plug it out the ground now. Um, and this very thin layer we live on, which, retain, which retains the additional carbon that above that layer, that, that is the layer on which we actually live, we're now degrading as well through loss of soil and so on. And, and that actually, I think, is something we need to be even more concerned about. Um, that even in, I, I, I personally think it's very likely that climate change will, will, will be redressed in the coming decades because I don't think we'll, I don't think it will be entirely because of decisions we, we just, we make. It'll be, we'll, we'll be forced to change our way of behaving. Uh, it's starting to happen already. And I think we'll be held to account for that quite quickly. As I said earlier, I don't think it necessarily means that humanity is going to be, people are going to be less happy in 100 years' time. They'll just be living the life they, they know, right? may not be the civilization we have today. But we need to, to give wildlife alongside us the time to re-engineer, like the Eastern Bar Bandicoots. That was a three-year process, three years, to start seeing tangible change. We're actually looking at uh, most examples I can find now of, of rewilding programs as suggesting that within five, seven years or so, you're, you're, you're getting a restabilization of systems. Um, even in the marine environment, this is a recent work being done in Sydney Harbour that shows that new novel systems are created quite quickly that restabilize. So as long as we look after those, we, we, we stand a good chance of weathering our way through. We can rebuild all of that lost resilience um, quite quickly. And, and it's remarkable for me. I, I, I mean, I think we're living in a very exciting time as well as a very concerning time. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I look back over the last 20 years and think, goodness, we've come a long way in terms of caring for nature, really. There's a lot of stuff we don't do well, but heck, it's kind of in the narrative now and people are getting riled up about it and they're, they're wanting better. Another 20 I years. Agree. Place, I, agree with, I agree with that. I, I agree with that. I also see... Um, us uh, as a humanity being more conscious and more understanding of what's going on there's always a question of you know is it not too late to save what we want to save uh, but then I always find consolation in the you know like 20 million years give it 20 you know even shorter and it'll be all fine if, if, if without us then uh, tough be shorter i don't think it'll be 20 million years i mean i i don't think we'll see a mass i don't think we'll see a mass extinction i, I think things will um I, I again i think our egos this how do i say it the same ego that makes us think that we can solve all the problems in the world the technology is the same ego that makes us think we can destroy it all yeah i agree i agree simon uh as requested if you had a magic wand so if I had a magic wand, I would wave it and I would try and take away the eco-anxiety of everyone in the world and refocus their attention quite simply 
on caring for their own local environment and doing their utmost to protect the wildlife and enhance it in their local area. And if everybody did that, we would see a recovery happen remarkably fast. In the meantime, I also think that in a better understanding of our place in and a more humble understanding of, of how little control we have and how powerful nature is to restore um, is a, a real, and, and this isn't just putting spin on it, there, this is a real source of hope. There are plenty of examples out there that people can uh, read about and learn about where amazing transformation has happened very fast, where whole communities through a creativity and imagination um, have managed to reform everything and, and rapidly. And, and I think we, everyone I talk to, close friends of mine, say to me, how can you be so positive? And when I tell them about the projects that I know about and what's happening and the rate at which it's happening, they, they get an inkling. But, but we hear very little about that. We, we're in this echo chamber of social media and despair that it is terribly, terribly bad for our health. Um, because nobody knows, nobody can tell the future. Um, and the only thing to echo my father's wise words over the many years, just be nice to each other and, and, and worry about your own behavior and the rest of everything else will look after itself. It's almost like a, like a stoic thing, right? To just take, just take care of what you then can take care of and, and focus on, on things that you can change and don't worry about the things that are outside of your control. To take a look out the window, look at the chaffinch in the tree or the house sparrow on the wall, spend a few moments looking at what it's doing and how much it's worried for what it's actually getting on with, and, 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 and take solace in that, that actually being a better animal often means doing less and thinking less and just getting on, but being as respectful as you can for the environment around you. And there's nothing more we can do than that. As individuals, and and I and I think that's extremely important that we understand that, and that we don't try and strive to constantly worry about doing more. Um, when in actual fact, we can, we all do as much as we can. We'll we'll get through this. Simon, you said at least three times already that we don't know the future and we can't tell the future. But that's one of the other staple questions that I'm asked. So, if you were a betting person, uh, what would be your bet on? Uh, how the future will play out in you know fifty hundred years? No, no, I, I think I think within I, I think uh, so. The latest uh, estimates are that within uh, by about twenty fifty, uh, the human population will decline rapidly. Uh, that was published recently by the World Authority. A lot of people don't realize that, but um, it follows a kind of one of those curves, like you know, all the social media firms go up like that, and then they get to when they crash. Okay, and it'll follow the same pattern again. If you look, there's patterns everywhere in nature that emulate all of this sort of stuff. So we're going to crash. Human population is going to crash. Um, within, uh, we're, we're forced already to change our behavior significantly. We're going to see considerable weather events. We're going to see food security issues, increasing cost of living. And that increase cost of living is going to result in a reduction, uh, possibly a global financial crisis. Small, remember, the whole of humanity's uh economy and everything we're doing to destroy the planet at the moment is based upon a the ability to do world trade and b our our growing population okay as soon as that reverses a lot of the fundamental things we take for granted today will 
actually collapse in a heap. See, I'm not even saying we've seen it saying this go everyone's gonna go to electric cars. It'll say it'll save the planet. People won't be able to afford electric cars in 50 years' time. There will be no electrical car industry. Okay. Again, people will live a simpler life. I was in Bali uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in the north, and I was walking down a street and seeing how people live there and they're happy and they're smiling and they're sitting having a coffee in the street in the sunlight with their neighbors and their kids. And they're, and I thought, you know, they're, they're living and cost of living is tiny compared to us. Okay. And they, they've got a, not even a mattress, just bo- wooden boards sitting in a, in a house, you know, and a little pot to cook on. But they're doing all right. Okay. And I don't, so I don't think the world will be an unhappier place because human beings are happy people. We're social animals, right? We'll adapt, okay. And I, and I, I do, I do think that. Um, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of uh, interface with the Aboriginal community, but I have this kind of, I guess, cheeky idea that they're sitting there. Just some of them are just sitting there, just biding their time and waiting for the inevitable that they're just, they're just. They'll get back everything they lost from Western colonialization and end up becoming the, the survivors once again. So be nice to each other, respect wildlife, respect each other, and do everything we can to try and help each other transition comfortably. And that includes trying to stop poor young people from being so anxious. It's 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 fascinating, and a lot of, I'm sure that's going to upset a lot of people that you were saying with with a smile on your face, how the uh, current civilization will collapse, there's going to be less people or no electric cars. But having said that, and, and you know, listeners, like regular listeners of the podcast, to the podcast already heard me uh, saying that, but there's a lot of new listeners. Uh, so I'm going to say it again, that uh, 10, probably more than 10 years ago, I was on a fishing trip in Guinea-Bissau. And that's, that wasn't, still is one of the poorest countries in the world. And when I came back, I was talking with my colleagues at work and, you know, like they are living, you know, like whatever that was, $5 a month or whatever. And, and he said, uh, one of them had said to me like, yeah, we are living like kings compared to them. And it was like, so obvious to me, like, no, we're not like, we're not, they're actually happy and smiling and, and look at the chief of the, you know, management unit. She's biting her nails and she's all stressed out and like it's it's not she doesn't or any one of us doesn't live like kings compared to them. The shit is on the other foot. So that's kind of like a resonate with me with what you're said right now. Listen, Simon, uh, that was great pleasure and uh, and fantastic conversation. Thank you for that. Um, tell us uh, what is the best way of uh, getting your book other than going to the link in the description of the show and in the newsletter and in the website. That's the easy, easy way. But maybe, you know, if people want to get in touch with you or, you know, anything that they need to know that we haven't touched on yet. Okay, so so uh, uh, my blog is simonmusto.blog. Uh, if you pop on there and you go to, and you're from the UK, and you pop onto the buy the book page, an advert should pop up. I'm actually doing a little prize giveaway at the moment for a trip to the Isle of Lewis. Uh, the book's introduced with, uh, not Isle of Lewis, sorry, Isle of Skye. Uh, the book's introduced with uh, a extracts from Gavin Maxwell's book, Ring of Bright Water. Uh, and so there's a chance to win that. Um, 
obviously please buy the book. Um, there's a link there to buy it directly from me, but if you prefer, uh, jump on a Google, whatever, it's available everywhere. On uh, You can look at, order it from your local bookstore. Uh, they can get, you can order it for Amazon. It's on Audible. It's on ebook. It's, it's, it's across the whole world. So, uh, um, it's not difficult to find. If you do buy it first, you can still jump on, enter the competition and just tick the box and you got five chances to win. Excellent. And folks, by, by all means, go and buy the book. It is, it is really important book. Uh, like it says on, on the, on the, on the cover, perhaps the most important book of our time. And, uh, it, it's either true or not far off. Simon, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, Tommy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 